Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hello, everyone. Good morning. I'll be reading the scripture. My name is Vanessa Scavone, and... Uh, my husband and I, we uh, are covenant members, we serve on the setup team, and uh, we're in the Weber East CG. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and as and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel, at the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today." But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, address Israel. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law." Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. What is up, everybody? How's it going? Cool. My name is Yusuf. I am the college director here. And as usual, uh, it is my pleasure to be with you all this morning. And I actually wanted to start by sharing a not so unique fact about myself. Uh, it's this. I love movies. Um, as long as they have a happy ending. All right. 
Matter of fact, it's almost kind of a pet peeve of mine to sit through like a two hour long movie only to be let down at the end. I don't like that, right? And I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one. Many of us in here knows what it feels like. We know what it feels like to be so into a movie or a series, to ride the roller coaster of emotion as we witness the intentional character development, the intense plot twists, the great conflict, all the while hoping for an ending that resolves the conflict and leaves somewhat of a happily ever after taste in our mouths. We know what that's like. We know what it's like to hope for that, a great ending, and yet be sadly disappointed. To watch the last scene of a a movie or the last episode of a grand finale and be like, no, no, this can't be the end. Even movies like The Notebook, okay? I know everyone cries at the end of that movie, but I didn't cry because I wasn't sad. I was mad. It's like, are you kidding me? You're going to let me get emotionally attached to this couple only to tell me that one loses their mind and they both die at the end? Not okay. Not okay. Well, I'm sorry. It's been 50 years. So at that point, (laughs) that was rude. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. We'll talk about confessions and repentance later. Um, Not okay. And so I'm not up here to rant. Um, So why do I share this? I share this because there's something in our souls that hopes for a happy ending. And though there are certainly stories in the Bible that end with a sense of peace and resolution, unfortunately, the book of Ezra, the book we've been in for the last 10 weeks, is not one of those books. You see, today it it marks the end of a 10-week sermon series through Ezra, and everything in me wants to tell you that the last two chapters that we read will leave us completely satisfied with the ending. But that's just not the reality. Y'all, the end of this book is awkward. It's awkward, and you'll see why. But first, let me catch you up. Ezra is a book in the Bible that began with God moving in power to allow for an initial wave of exiles to return home uh, on a mission to rebuild the temple. And so after 70 years in captivity, Uh, the first wave of exiles did just that. They left Babylon, they arrived in Jerusalem, and though there was tons of opposition, they rebuilt the temple. And they resided there for over 60 years before God raised up another man, Ezra, a lover of God's word, and God moves in power to have Ezra lead a second wave of exiles back um, to Jerusalem from Babylon. But what we see in our passage is that Ezra arrives, and before he can really even settle into the promised land, he gets some bad news. He finds out that even though God has been incredibly gracious to his people, God's people have been incredibly unfaithful to their God. And so for the last 60 years, that first wave of exiles, they've resorted back to sinful ways. Remember, the start of this book, it was a journey to rebuild the temple. But we get here and realize that, man, the book of Ezra is much more than just building the temple, apparently. Because the temple's been built for 60 years, yet God's people are still obviously prone to wander. Why? Because even though the temple has been rebuilt, their hearts haven't been transformed. And so although there have been helpful principles that we've learned about rebuilding and reestablishing, we get to the end, and we realize that, man, Ezra is not just a blueprint or a manual, for rebuilding the temple, but it's meant to be a magnifying glass on the sinfulness and brokenness of the human heart. 
This book isn't just asking, hey, what is it going to take to rebuild the temple? It's asking, what is it really going to take if the human heart is as broken as we see that it is, that even after God's continued faithfulness, they're still backsliding, then what's it really going to take to revive it, right? And that's what the last two chapters of Ezra are about, is Ezra's attempt to answer that question as he responds to God's, um, the brokenness of God's people. And so in some ways we're going to see Ezra's a great example to follow, but in other ways he does some really confusing things. He says some really confusing things, makes some really confusing laws, and it just, it makes for a really awkward ending to the story. So it's not just about rebuilding. It's not just about reestablishing. It's about revival. And if that's the case, that's the question that I want us to answer today, right? What is it really going to take for revival in the human heart? And as we read, remember, it's not just a manual. It's a magnifying glass that serves as like a two-way mirror, right? Meaning that even as we observe what's happening in the story, we as readers are meant to continually reflect on our own hearts. And so as we draw points, you'll hear me ask along the way, what about us? What about us? And so with that, let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 9, Ezra arrives, and the first thing that he hears The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations. So verse 2 gives us a little bit more detail and tells us that, man, many of Israel's leaders for the past 60 years, they've been marrying foreign women. Okay, now, as someone who is in an interracial marriage, uh, let me be the first to say the Bible is not saying that at one point, or even now, interracial marriage is wrong. It wasn't wrong for Jewish Israelite men to to marry non-Israelite women. Matter of fact, what do Moses, Boaz, Joseph, and many others have in common? They all married non-Israelite women in alignment with God's will, meaning none of them were in sin. Also, of the five women in Jesus' genealogy, most of them are Gentiles, non-Israelites. In other words, foreign women. So the problem here, it's not about race at all. It's a matter of worship. Most foreign women, they worshiped foreign gods. And Jewish men were allowed to marry foreign women as long as they chose to forsake their pagan gods and reorient their worship towards the one true God, Yahweh. However, that wouldn't happen oftentimes. Oftentimes, it's the Jewish men that would forsake their worship of Yahweh and begin to worship these pagan gods and engage in these abominable practices like child sacrifice. And so we see clearly this is tied to worship, not race. So can all my interracial couples just breathe a sigh of relief for a quick second? All right? Praise God. God. Me too. (laughs) So Ezra hears this, and it breaks his heart for two reasons. One, he knows God's law, so he knows this is wrong. Two, he knows the people's history. He knows that they're doing the things, they're forsaking worship to Yahweh is what got them sent into exile in the first place. Their faithlessness to Yahweh, their abandonment of the Torah. And so Ezra, he comes face to face with the utter brokenness of his people and it crushes him. So there's a lot we're gonna learn about Ezra, but I believe he's a great example in two ways. The first way we actually see here He's able to identify that the people are way off track and need revival because he knows and values God's word. 
right? He not only understands God's law, but he values God's law. They, they matter to him. And this is really important because according to verses one and two, you can be a priest, you can be a chief leader, you can read your Bible every day, you can know the law better than most people and still not value it enough to follow it. And so Ezra knows the law, but he follows the law so much so that God's law and God's law alone is his reference for holiness. And so with that, I ask, what about us? In a world that is continuously, constantly attempting to redefine right and wrong, will we allow God's word to be our reference for what's good and what isn't? In a world where everyone thinks that they are inherently good people and righteous enough within themselves, will we allow God's word to be our reference for true holiness? Will we allow what Jesus says in Mark 18, where he says, no one is good but God alone. Will we allow his voice, the very word of God, speak louder than the voice of the world that says, hey, to be good, man, good is now a relative term. You just do you. Be, be, do what's good to you. You know what's really interesting? I remember doing a, an experiment a couple years ago um, where I just wanted to go around and ask, how many people, if I asked, you think you're a good person, how many people would say yes? And I can't remember exactly why I did this. I'm sure it was for a sermon illustration, so it works out. Uh, <laughs> but I spent a day on UT's campus just asking everyone, hey, do you think you're a good person? And then I went to Merritt later that day, and I literally asked everyone at Merritt. I became that guy that was like, is that the good person guy? I was just asking everyone. They would give me their answer before I even got to them. And I remember all of them were saying yes, of course, most of them had a few no's. But that's not really what I was concerned with. I assumed most people would say yes. What I really wanted to know is how did they know that they were good? What was their reference to measure themselves against that helped them determine whether they were good or not? Because that's what's most important. In order to know if you are a good person, you need a, a reference, a perfectly good reference to measure against. And what's interesting is every single person that I asked that question that, that thought they were a good person they weren't using a perfect reference to measure themselves against. It was actually the opposite. Most of them weren't measuring themselves. Most of them, they were measuring themselves against people that they believed were morally worse than them. So, man, I think I'm a good person because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And so you measure yourself against the worst person you know to convince yourself that you're a good person. I'm not sure that's how it works. But most of us, we think we're inherently good because we have the wrong reference. And when we don't think our hearts need revival, it's likely because we're comparing our mor morality to people in prison, not God's perfect law. You know, I, th I'm not, I think I'm a good person. I haven't killed a neighborhood of people, right? And Jesus comes on the scene, shows us just how perfectly good God's law is and says, hey, just because we're not taking someone's physical life doesn't mean we're not guilty of murdering them in our hearts. Because to look at another brother and a sister with, with, with ill intent, with anger in our hearts, is to break the law that says do not murder. You see, in order to know that our hearts are broken and need revival, we need a reference for what it looks like to be perfectly whole. And Jesus shows us that the law is meant to be just that. I mentioned at the beginning, this is not just a magnifying glass, it's it's not just a, a manual, but it's a magnifying glass, a two-way mirror. Ezra is broken by what he sees in his people. 
a people that, that are unable to measure up to God's law because their hearts need revival. What about us? In our natural sinful states, our hearts, the hearts of others, we need revival. We need it, but we won't pray for it. We won't pray for uh, revival in the hearts of humanity if we don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the hearts of humanity. And if we don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with our hearts, it's likely because we don't have the right reference. God's law is the perfect reference. It accurately diagnoses the brokenness of the human heart. And because Ezra knows God's law intimately and follows it, he can see just how tragic this sinful situation is. And so for that reason, Ezra is actually a great example to follow here. The second good example that Ezra gives us is actually how he responds to the brokenness of the people. Verse three, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Uh, okay, Ezra, I get being upset, but you pulled out your own hair, right? Like what? Uh, I'm not sure I could get to the point to where anyone could upset me to the point to where I pull out my own beard hair. Um, Cause it took me a while to grow the, okay, was a dumb joke, <laughs> dumb joke. All right, so what's happening here? In those days, you would tear your garment. You, you would tear your cloak as an external symbol of what was happening inside of you. And so he's not apathetic. That's the last thing he is. Rather, his heart, it shatters. It breaks at the sin of his brothers and sisters. But he doesn't just sit appalled wondering how could this happen. He laments. And his lament moves him to a prayer of conf confession and repentance. Confession and repentance, which is 100% a prerequisite for any hardened heart to soften and ultimately experience revival. I want us to turn our attention to Ezra's prayer, though. Notice all throughout his prayer, he's using words like we, us, our, our iniquity, our heads, our guilt. If you keep reading, you'll see that there are two main focuses of Ezra's prayer. Their collective guilt and God's abundant grace. Their collective guilt. What do I mean by that? Ezra didn't see himself as far removed from the brokenness of his people. He doesn't get on a high horse. Rather, he's extremely humble. He's humble. There is no reason for Ezra to use words like our iniquity when it comes to the people's sin. He didn't marry a foreign wife. He's not engaging in pagan worship, but he recognizes a continued pattern amongst his people, regardless of the generation, God's people continually struggle to remain faithful to God. And though he may not even know why, he knows deep down that his own heart isn't immune to that. And so in humility, he's on his knees. He's confessing their collective guilt on behalf of the entire nation to a God that has been nothing but gracious and faithful to his people magnifying glass on the human heart, a mirror for our own hearts. So what about us? Do we see brokenness in this world as something that's out there, right? So, something that's out there, far removed from the tendency of our own hearts? Right? Or, or do we acknowledge that we are active participants in the brokenness of the human condition? 
the brokenness of the human heart. Is confession and repentance a consistent pattern, practice among us? When we realize that we're off track, is this true of us individually and corporately that we are quick to confess our wrongdoing and repent? Do we find ourselves often complaining about the sins of others while minimizing our own sin, right? If I can just confess um, for a quick moment, personally, sometimes I find it, I'm very quick to call out the brokenness in others while minimizing the brokenness in my own heart. And a while ago, God actually gave me a great analogy for what it's like to do that. Um, I was actually driving in traffic and I just remember being so angry that traffic was so bad. It's like, man, stupid traffic. This is so annoying. I can't believe you people. And it's not like I heard God's audible voice in that moment. It just felt like God just like made me aware of what was actually coming out of my mouth. You see, I was frustrated at everyone else on the road because from my perspective, they were in my way. They were causing traffic for me. It never occurred to me until that moment that I was also in their way. (laughs) Like me complaining about traffic was hypocritical, was it not? Why? Because the fact that I'm on this road where there's traffic means I'm a part of the problem. Like if you were to pull up your Waze map, you would see my Waze emoji where all the red is in the traffic, right? It's not just their bumper on mine, it's my bumper on theirs, which means I'm contributing to the very problem I'm complaining about. And God made that clear to me that I don't just do that with traffic. I do that with brokenness too. Quick, quick to complain, call out brokenness in the world, in the church even, in others, as if I'm far removed from it. And I ain't. Now, do I still get annoyed at traffic? Honestly, yes, I do. But I'm much more humble about it. And that's the point. I realize I'm a part of the problem, okay? It's the same sin and how it ruins God's good world. Same with that. Before we go judging people for the ways that they're broken, let's not forget that our hearts aren't completely pure either. And that doesn't mean we don't address sin, but there should be a humility when we do, just like the humility we see in Ezra. We're all a part of the problem. So repentance and confession should be a common practice for all of us, individually, corporately, especially if we want to ensure that our hearts and the hearts of others soften, don't grow hardened to the gospel. And so Ezra prays a prayer of confession, but Ezra knows that confession is not enough. Acknowledging your wrongdoing before the Lord is only really part one of true repentance. Ezra knows that biblically speaking, true repentance requires change in action. He knows it's not enough to just feel guilty because ultimately God is not trying to lead us to guilt. He's trying to lead us to himself. So for Ezra, what better way to know what God wants them to do than to read his word? The only problem is Ezra doesn't consult the word of God. What happens instead? Well, as Ezra is mourning, a crowd gathers around him and he hears a voice in verse two the voice of Shechaniah, and it says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. 
Shechaniah shows up to Ezra and gives Ezra some really good news, seemingly good news, right? That even at the height of Israel's depravity and brokenness and unfaithfulness to God, there's hope, Ezra. Huh? There is hope. As Ezra is mourning the depravity of his people, as he stares into the brokenness of the sinful heart, a heart that can't stop sinning against its creator, no matter how hard it tries, he hears the best news he's heard since he got to Jerusalem. There's hope, Ezra. This doesn't have to be the end of our story, Ezra. There is a solution to all of this, Ezra. And I, Shechaniah, know the solution that will finally bring revival to the sinful hearts of our people. I'm sure Ezra was like, please keep talking, Shechaniah. Please tell me the solution. Where is this hope found, Shechaniah? Before we answer that question, remember, it's not just a manual, a magnifying glass, a mirror for our own hearts. And so as the reader, what are you feeling right now? Are you feeling what I'm feeling? Hope, right? Tension, but not bad tension, at least not yet. Almost like a sense of anticipation and hope for Shechaniah's solution to be the solution that makes all things right and finally leads to revival, right? But remember what I told you at the beginning about how movies that offer hope but end poorly aren't my favorite and how the book of Ezra is kind of like that because of its awkward ending. Well, brace yourself, because this is precisely the moment that I'm talking about. Shechaniah offers all of this hope for a perfect solution. And we find out what it is in verse 3, chapter 10. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Wait, what? According to the law? The law doesn't say to do this. That's your solution? Remember, women didn't work, right? They weren't allowed to work. So to send a woman and a child away was to sentence them to death. That's your hopeful solution, Shechaniah? To make orphans and widows of roughly 100 women? Even though Exodus 22 tells you to care for the orphan and the widow, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. That's your solution? To, to issue a mass divorce, even though Malachi 2 tells you that God hates divorce? Or what about Zechariah, a prophet during the time of the book of Ezra? What about his prophecies in chapter 7 of this book? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. I don't think they were intentionally trying to devise evil. And I actually feel for Ezra. I genuinely believe that Ezra and Shechaniah were doing the best that they can, and I can't pretend that I would have done anything better if I was in his shoes in that difficult situation. But even though there's not a specific law for Ezra's situation, the heart of the law is very clearly expressed through the passages we just read. And so how did we get here? Roughly 100 divorces, 100 widows, and even more children out to fend for themselves. How did we get here? 
But for starters, as much as Ezra loves the word, he allowed the voice of a friend to influence him more than the, the word of God itself. As much as Ezra knew God's law, he forgot to read him bet- between the lines. And therefore, he missed the heart of God that is very clearly reflected in God's own law. Deuteronomy 31, 12 through 13, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner or foreigner within your towns. Why? So that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children would have not, who have not known it may hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God. You see, God's heart has always been for Israel to be holy, to be set apart, but not so that they can stick their nose up at other nations. Quite the opposite. So that the sojourner, the foreigner, would see the goodness of Yahweh reflected through his very own people and that they themselves would desire to enter into a relationship with the one true God. Ezra's first mistake was missing the heart of God reflected in his law. Ezra's second mistake was that he failed to realize that his friend wasn't pushing him to be dependent on the Lord for wisdom. But rather, Shechaniah's advice, it pushed a self-reliance, man-dependence solution, void of dependence of, uh, on God. And Ezra bought it without bringing it to the Lord himself. Here's what I mean by a self-reliance solution. Look at verse three. <clears throat> Let us make a covenant. That, that phrase, let us make, should ring a bell. Well, where else do we hear that in scripture? Genesis. Who's the first person to use that phrase? God himself. Let us make man in our image. And the next time you hear that phrase in scripture, it's during the Tower of Babel. Shortly after the fall of man, we see that phrase at the Tower of Babel where mankind is trying to be like God. And what do they say? Genesis 11:4. Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. This phrase, let us make, in this context is a symbol of self-reliance. The, the exact opposite of dependence on God and actually reflects the original sin that Adam and Eve committed. Don't depend on God for wisdom of what's good and bad. Be self-reliant and decide for yourself. That same idea of self-reliance is reflected in Shechaniah's solution. As he desires to bring revival amongst the people, there is hope, Ezra. There is hope. Let us make a covenant with God. In other words, it's on us. We're going to try harder. We're going to follow the rules. We're going to make an oath. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap. And our ability to to follow through on our covenant is going to save us, Ezra. There is hope, Ezra. But it's found in our own strength. And immediately after that, ironically, we see immediately after that how far this gets them. I truly believe that they are desiring to do right. But because even their hearts are broken and they depended on their own strength, they missed God's heart. And so their attempts in their own strength to make a law aimed at reviving the human heart, a heart that can't help break God's law to begin with, only made things arguably worse. 
as much as we can learn from Ezra, the the main thing we see is that you can have the right concern and the right principle and yet be terribly wrong in application and method. And so what does this ultimately show us? Yes, we need the law to recognize that our hearts are broken to begin with. Yet, Yes, we need the law to discern when we need to confess and repent when we're off track. But in both cases, the law only exposes that we are broken. It does nothing to fix the brokenness. And so we can try in our own strength to see our hearts revived, to see the hearts of others transformed through rote obedience to the law, but it won't work because the law condemns us every single time. We're not good enough in our own strength. We don't measure up in our own strength. Our hearts are incredibly broken and left to ourselves, even when attempting to follow the rules to perfection. We may make things worse, and that's kind of the point, to realize that in our own strength, we cannot revive our hearts or the hearts of others, so that the only solution is to fully depend on someone who can. You see, when Shechaniah spoke to Ezra and gave him that advice, I believe he wasn't wrong about what he said, right? He was wrong about what he did. (laughs) He wasn't wrong about what he said. That even now, Ezra, there is still hope. Shechaniah was right about that. And that wasn't just true back then. It's true right now. You may actually feel like you've completely blown it, right? Like, I I don't need to. No one needs to convince you that you're broken because every day you allow the, the shame of your mistakes to wash over you. I don't need to convince you that you're broken. Even now, I can say that there's hope for you, for revival, for for things to be made new. You may feel like, man, there is no way that God can forgive me or heal me. Man, if they knew what I've done, even now there is hope, right? Some of you may feel, man, like I started from the bottom and I'm still at the bottom. No matter how hard I try, I don't measure up. Even now there is hope. There's hope. We just need to know where to look. Not too long before Ezra, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that what he prophesied that what Ezra was hoping for would eventually come to pass. A day when the heart of man would be restored and able to walk in God's ways. However, this promise wasn't going to come to pass because of mankind's good behavior, but rather because of a good and faithful God that always keeps his promises. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, or remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my law. Notice how many times God says, I will. Like, I'm gonna do this, y'all. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He's going to make a way. It's his spirit that's responsible for true heart level revival. And it's only through full dependence on his spirit that we as a church will see hearts revived in our midst, our own hearts, the hearts outside of our four walls. 
It's only through dependence on his spirit. It's what his spirit does is revive the heart of man. And so to recap, what can we learn from Ezra about what it will really take to revive the human heart? The law is our reference, confession and repentance, and godly dependence. And I know it sounds like I'm wrapping up here because all of these words rhyme, but I couldn't help it. (laughs) So we get to the end of Ezra, and we realize that the prophecy we just read in Ezekiel is obviously not fulfilled then, right? Like, Ezekiel's prophecy is not fulfilled at the end of Ezra. Or else it wouldn't be awkward. If this promise isn't fulfilled at the end of Ezra, then what does that mean? Once again, all throughout the sermon, it's not just a manual, it's a magnifying glass and a mirror, but it's also a pointer to foreshadow a greater Ezra who is to come and fulfill the promise of God that Ezra makes in his chapter six of his prophecy to give mankind a revived heart that's actually capable of obeying the law. The book of Ezra doesn't end with a happily ever after kind of feel, but it's meant to be somewhat of a a to be continued, right? And it's not until Christ arrives on the scene that we really get a full picture of who this book is actually pointing to because Christ comes as the greater Ezra. But, But where Ezra fails to show mercy and attempts to be holy by by creating a law that forces the Jewish men to divorce their wives. Jesus, in the greatest act of mercy ever displayed, on that cross would have his beard ripped out and his garments torn and have his father turn his face away, but not because of some law passed by man. It was the father's will to turn his face away from the son so that we who have worshiped lesser gods would not just become holy, but so that we, a church filled with Gentiles, can be welcomed into the family of God by becoming the foreign wife that Christ himself marries. Christ, the the son of God, died to make us holy and to marry a foreign wife. There There is no greater act of mercy than that one. And he then sends his spirit to both revive us and reside in us. We become the very temple of God, whose law is written on our hearts. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to the spirit. And so now when we read the end of Ezra, we're like, man, this is awkward. There's so much tension here. And we're left with that awkward feeling of to be continued. We look to Jesus and we rest in the satisfying resolve of his words. It is finished. No more striving for holiness, y'all. No, no more striving to, to, for, to, to force revival in our hearts or the hearts of others. But by the power of the Spirit, we walk out a holiness that's been granted to us. And I know that we fall short sometimes. I know that it can feel like, man, is the Holy Spirit really residing in me if I'm struggling this much? You're holy. Because God sees you as holy. He's he's paid for that sin. And so now it's the active walk of walking out our holiness, which means I'm confessing, I'm repenting, I'm allowing it not just to be a confession, but a change in action. And I'm walking with other believers until the day that Christ comes and we see the full fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where we no longer struggle to obey God's law because it's written on our hearts and he's with us. No more sin. No more shame.
Thanks be to God. And so our final prayer point for today's sermon, for our series is twofold. Lord, help us remain dependent on your spirit as we pursue your kingdom and help us keep you and the things of your kingdom central in our hearts. Well, family, as we rebuild and reestablish, let's remember to also continually pray for revival. As we push back darkness, as we depend on the spirit to see God's kingdom come in Austin and in the nations here as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? Man, I just, Father, after every gospel point of every sermon, I just, I'm always thinking this just feels too good to be true. When I think about the, the depravity in my own heart, my tendency to be prone to wander, that as much as I try to measure up, I continuously fall short. And yet because of Christ, and because of my trust in him, you catch me in your grace and you redeem me and you restore me and you call me a beloved child and you say that one day you're coming back and this struggle of fighting the flesh will be over as we live in perfect renewal of our bodies and of this broken world. God, I pray that anyone in here that is struggling to maintain hope in Christ or doesn't have hope in Christ, would your spirit do what obviously my words can't? It doesn't matter how much I've prepared. It doesn't matter what I say. If your spirit is not here, nothing changes. I can't speak revival into the hearts of man. Not my own heart and not the heart of others. It's only your spirit. And so I pray now, God, that for those in here that, that do not know Christ and recognize the shame that they are overwhelmed with, would they in this moment choose to cast that shame to the cross, receive you as Lord, and begin to follow you as Lord, God. And I pray that that would happen in the heart of so many others, that your spirit would revive and that we would partner with your spirit to see revival come in our, in our city, in our nation, in the nations, God. We love you, praise you. This feels too good to be true. It's true, but it's just really good. You're just that good. And so I just, I just pray that we would continue to worship you as a result of how good that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.